Hello and welcome. You're listening to Embodied Astrology, and I'm your host, Renee Sills. I'm releasing this episode on August 11th, 2022, the day of a full moon in Aquarius that is conjunct with Saturn, square to Uranus, Mars, and the lunar nodes. This lunation and aspect pattern describes incredible tension and stuck spots between the past and the future. Integrity, care, and commitment are required, as well as courage, vision, and innovation in order for us to navigate through the overwhelm of overlapping violences and disasters to a world and a time that survives and thrives. My guests for this episode are Michelle and Ramon Gabrieloff Parrish, who are true leaders in this time and the founders of Once and Future Green, providing consulting, facilitating, and education for community groups, governments, universities, and philanthropies working on climate and environmental justice. As partners and individuals, Michelle and Ramon both bring creative, communal approaches deeply rooted in spirit and ancestral traditions. In this episode, they talk with me about the lineages they come from and the visions they have for their work in the world. I get their insight as storytellers, activists, mystics, and astrologers into our current moment and the potentials we can find in times of breakdown and crisis. Michelle and Ramon will be offering a guest workshop with Embodied Astrology on August 21st called Aligning the Layered Self, Ancestral Inheritance and Leadership. They'll hold space for exploration of potentials handed down to us by our lineages, as well as specific vulnerabilities and unfinished business, with the aim of helping us all grow our capacities for multi-generational leadership and moment-to-moment self-awareness. The live workshop will be held on Zoom, and sliding scale registration is open now. If you're interested but can't make the live event, you can still sign up to access the recording. For more information and registration, please visit the workshop section at embodiedastrology.com. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you for listening. Michelle and Ramon, welcome to the Embodied Astrology podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be in conversation with you both. I am really thrilled to, Ramon, have you back as a guest and Michelle to have you uh, for your first time here on the podcast. We're so happy. <laughs> Thank you for creating this space, weaving us in, building community. We love it and appreciate it. I've had the good fortune to be able to know you both for several years now, um, but I'm wondering if you would be willing to introduce yourself to the listeners. And I'm really curious if each of you could talk to us a little bit about what lineages are moving through you and how you've come to the places where you each are in your work and your evolution as human beings. And also what is calling and compelling you um, in your work and your evolution? Okay, I guess I'll try to start. Um, hello everyone, uh, Ramon Parrish, Ramon Gabrieloff Parrish. I am speaking from Colorado, um, ancestral lands of the Ute, Arapaho, Cheyenne, the Apache, some folks say, and some people say up to 42 other uh, indigenous groups that were here before settlers and folks arrived. And let's see, as far as lineages, I see myself coming from a few lineages. Um, I think one lineage that I'm starting to recognize and accept is I come from, um, you know, family of, of, of preachers, you know, black Christian 
traditions, people who, you know, quote unquote, people of faith and people who um, minister to other people. And even though I see the language that I use and maybe the rituals and practices as being quite different from um, my family background and, and, and upbringing, I feel the same energy of ministering to people. And that makes its way through, you know, my, my day job, I'm an educator, you know, um, and, you know, I do some, you know, individual mentoring and consulting, some of which utilizes um, astrological practice. Um, yeah, and I see that all as, as a kind of ministering and, and a, an expression of, of ministry in a way. Um, I see myself, the more I kind of tune into my ancestral background and tradition, I see myself as being part of the, the blues tradition and not necessarily because I'm a musician or anything like that, but it's just like kind of a way of approaching reality, I feel like, where you, you're, you're willing to make things up based off, of, um, based off of what is needed at the moment and off of a, a, a certain feeling of aliveness. Um, and then I see myself as part of the Afrofuturist tradition. Um, and that's a tradition in a way that I think is actually coming backward from the future into the present moment. Um, I'll say more about that later. And finally, I see myself, I go and stand under the night sky. And when I stand under the night sky and I look at the stars, I have a feeling of, uh, of having come from there. And, and I'm not saying that in any literal way, it's just this sort of primordial feeling of like, so when we talk about lineage in part, we're like, where did you come from? And I look at the night sky and my feeling is of having come from there. I come from lineages of paradise of um, really believing and seeing the beauty of this place. Um, I get asked a lot, and especially when I was growing up, I got asked a lot, where are you from? I'm what some people say looks ethnically ambiguous. And so I used to get asked that question a lot. And I actually got to the place where I'm like, oh, this is an honor. I get to like name my places and name my ancestry and name my peoples on a regular basis in a way that I don't think other Americans actually get to do very often. Um, and so in some ways it's my honor to name some of these places, especially ones that I haven't been to and that feel really far away. Um, my grandmother was from Aleppo in Syria. Um, and um, Aleppo used to be a hub of um, Jewish culture throughout the world um, with an enormous temple and just um, it's just an, an, international, an international hub for Jews in the world. And I feel like in part that's important to say right now when, um, you know, some people have really been observing that the land um, for Jews has really been shrinking in the world as people go more and more to the United States, Europe, and Israel, um, formerly Palestine. Um, her husband, my grandfather, Yadidia, who was um, just like placed something in my heart since I was little, um, was from 
um, Samarkand in Uzbekistan, also a center place for Jews um, a long time ago. But again, probably not many left there, if any at all. Um, and it's a place on the Silk Route. So both with the traditions, both of my Jewish side of the family and Middle Eastern, Central Asian, Middle, Central Asian and Middle Eastern Jewish side of the family, you know, just these rich traditions of like interplay and, you know, sciences and cultures and food that were really coming from these far distances um, and creating new homes in these places, um, which is good because maybe we've had to take some of that as we've had to flee those places. Um, and so they immigrated to the U.S. and to Colombia and South America, where my parents were both raised. And um, so I'm also Colombian, um, which uh, one of the things I love about Colombia is that we really recognize the ways in which to be Colombian is to be indigenous, in our case, probably Muisca. Um, I was raised being told it was chicha, but I think that's the language of the Muisca. And it means being African, um, West African, and it means um, being Spanish um, and definitely inheriting that language. So I come from these many cultures and have really um, worked in my life to have them come into one place that is me rather than feeling like it's a fracturing and that I come from these like disparate lineages, but really to say, no, this is this is what we look like as one, um, which is good because Ramon and I now have kids that come from both of the lineages that you just heard about. Um, I come from a lineage of being multilinguistic and being a translator in many ways. And I think that continues to be my passion and a role that I play, whether it's actual literal languages, or if it's, you know, just bridging many different worlds and sustainability world. Um, sometimes like right now, maybe a more spiritual world, um, the social justice world, just inhabiting all of these different um, places. And again, not trying to um, have them seem so separate, but maybe sort of like, you know, your fingers on your hands, you know, if you're looking at your fingertips, it might look like five very different things, but actually it's, it's all part of one hand. So trying to um, bring all of these different pieces together. And I think that's part of what we do too with Once in Future Green. Um, that's kind of our umbrella name for Ramon and I, um, and hopefully some of our other partners work, which really just says, you know, Earth was a paradise, which means it will be, which means we could work on that now and we could make it so now. We come from that. We'll return to that. Um, it may take some work to get there, uh, but there is nowhere else in this universe that is so abundant and delicious and beautiful and heartbreaking. Thank you both for offering that. I feel like with introductions, a lot of the time we get a lot of the not mundane, but in some ways more material world, you know, CV items. And my experience with both of you is that your intentionality and the depth of spirit that you bring into your work is so palpable and has a very strong presence with what you do in the material realm, the actions and the job titles and such that you have. Um, can you talk a little bit about Once in Future Green and what this project is and where it's come from more practically in terms of both of your backgrounds and experiences and skill sets? 
Yeah, I think the title for me is so funny because especially Ramon and I would say our oldest, um, Akasha, are really such like mythologists and historians. Um, and we have all these myths and stories from around the world. Um, and the one that came up for this and for this naming is the idea of the once and future king. And um, it's a European myth. It speaks to um, King Arthur's round table. And I think the urge um, within that culture of having a more equal and egalitarian and fair society, and that there would be a time um, where, where that would be possible. So it's sort of funny to me that the, the myth that we went for really comes from the once and future king. And Ramon may have more to say about that. But, you know, what we're trying to cultivate is not only that sense of like equalness and a group and like a new way of doing things and that like the shape of a table could be different and it can have all these different meanings. On top of that, we're also talking about the green. Like, you know, I mentioned uh, Syria as part of my lineage and been thinking about dates, um, which come from the desert and are some of the sweetest fruit, like per ounce that you get in the world. And just like, there's date trees, date palms that are huge and like literally grow out of the sand, you know, and just, and we're probably spit out, you know, there were probably seeds that were spit from the fruit of ancestors long gone um, that, you know, even in the most seemingly barren place started to cultivate um, what could be part of a once in future green. And so I think the other thing for me is once in future green also speaks to the diversity of paradises that there can be and that the once in future green looks different where we are in Colorado than it does in Colombia or than it does in Israel, Palestine, than it does in Uzbekistan. You know, there's just like so many different possibilities for what this green can look like, taste like, feel like, sound like. Um, and so that's that's part of what we're trying to bring is like the allowance for a ton of different diversity, even if there's some of the same underlying principles of like equality and working with nature instead of against nature, instead of trying to extract from nature. And um, you know, what are these, what are these different um shifts that we can make towards paradise aka the once and future green and and also naming it like it's coming so are we going to be a part of making it happen or not and are we going to get to be here with it or not money what would you add especially to maybe the story yeah like that um i feel like the story you know you've got king arthur knights of the round table camelot and it's sort of like camelot was this appearance of a future possibility in the present and then it disappeared, right? It fell apart, it disappeared. Um, and so I think we're trying to evoke that idea of the appearance of a future possibility. Um, and hopefully it's like a future possibility that's here to stay. Um, I think another thing is that like, if you look at like King Arthur or whatever you, King Arthur was just the, is just an appearance of the wants of the future. It's not the beginning. There will before, there's after, and there will probably simultaneous, like, you know, sovereigns. And then the green is the king, you know, you know what I'm saying? The green is the sovereign. That, that's the that's the deal. Um, and 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 all that sounds very abstract. So, so 
what are we actually up to? What we're actually up to is once a future grain is sort of a formalizing um, of a lot of work that Michelle and I have been doing for years, which is um, work as educators, work as consultants, uh, work as co coaches, um, and it's really around helping. It could be businesses, it could be individuals, it could be schools, done a good amount of work on the university level. And it's really looking at how do we, you know, first of all, how do we fuse justice and sustainability, um, which isn't, isn't so revolutionary now, but when we started doing this stuff in, you know, the late 2000s, people were still shaking their heads and like, what are you talking about, you know? Um, so and I, early 2000s. Yeah, early 2000s. Yeah. So how do you fuse justice and sustainability? Um, you know, how do we um, kind of trans, transform systems to, you know, incorporate principles of sustainability or awareness of earth or permaculture? Um, how do we transform systems so that they are more in tune with equity and more in tune with community participation and community empowerment, right? It's not like, like we do some consulting and I would lean more on Michelle with this um, on, on like, you know, city and um, uh, county governments. And, you know, they come up with these plans for how they're going to make such and such more green, but they projected on the people that they claim to help instead of actually growing it together. And so a lot of the work is around helping those folks who are in these decision-making positions to reframe their thinking and recognize that they have to do their initiatives with the community. And then on the flip side, it's with growing community, uh, communities in a way so that they know that they have that power and that they can lead actually the transformation of their communities to be more uh, green, more just, you know, more economically viable. And so, you know, a lot of that, some of that is still aspirational, but that really kind of sums up a lot of what we've been doing for the last uh, many years. And, you know, there's a consulting aspect, there's an educational aspect, um, and there's an art aspect, I think that is um, sort of more emergent. So, you know, when you name things and you formalize things, it also it kind of gives it a certain power that it did, that it did not have before. Um, and we, we also really want to claim this power of myth and story um, and, and also question the myths that we are unconsciously uh, acting out in some ways. You know, even if you're like the so-called square city planner or a corporate person, um, oftentimes there's a story that we're, we're dealing with that we don't pay attention to that is a sort of bigger script for behavior. So we're going to work with that level too. Part of what we're doing in some senses is demystifying what sustainability and climate justice and environmental justice mean and look like, um, especially for the community and sort of saying, this is where we come from. Right. So in some ways we're demystifying what is sustainability, what is climate, how do how do environmental design practices and permaculture work? And in other ways, we're trying to remystify it and saying it's magical, it's regenerative, it's not a straight line. Um, yeah, so working to demystify sustainability at the same time, remystify um, the ways in which we can look to nature for healing um, as we try to help heal it, her, they, 
um, and also remystifying um, some of the strengths of our cultures and the assets that we come from. I think especially for um, folks that feel like they come from communities that are really only seen of, as deficits, like communities of color. Um, you know, we're not just a set of deficits. We're here. We made it. There's a reason. There's a way. Um, there's some practical knowledge along with a lot of magic. So, yeah, remystify and demystify at the same time. I love that. Thank you both so much for um, going over your yeah vision and and what you're holding. I'm wondering, from your perspectives, where are we right now in 2022? It feels like we are really at an important juncture, and there's been obviously a lot of um, calls for awareness when it comes to climate and the environment, as well as uh, social and relational and structural um, institutional relationships, et cetera. How do you see this current moment that we're in right now? And I'd love to hear you um, tell a story, if, if that works for you, and since you're both storytellers and include in the story any elements that you see historically or politically as well as spiritually or astrologically. Um, but yeah, give us a, a landing place in your perspective. What is this moment about? This moment is hard. This is a hard moment. One of our teachers, Joanna Macy, um, has worked with others and calling it the great unraveling. So much was woven together. So much was unified. Um, that has just unraveled, untethered. There's like frayed ends. There's things that, you know, there's threads that you don't know if they're going to be able to hold on anymore. Um, there's so much injustice. I mean, if we were in a story, it's really, or even the way I think of it is like, if we were in childbirth, <laughs> we're in that place that you go through in childbirth, you know, people from the outside want to call it transition, um, generally people going through birth call it that point where you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make it. This can't be what this process that all mothers go through feels like. Like, I'm going to break. I'm going to rip in half. I don't know that I'm going to make it through this. I feel that we're in that. And I feel like I also want to be fair to a lot of our ancestry where we've had multiple rounds of feeling that breaking point. And a feeling like we can't go any on anymore and that there's no more horrors to see. And um, I feel like in our work, people right away want to be like, give us the hope. What's the action? And I just really feel like I can only go there once we acknowledge how hard the place that we are in is. We've made it through impossible odds to still be here. And I'm going to be honest, we have impossible odds to keep moving forward, especially in the ways that we want. I work on the Colorado River. Um, and I just recently was part of this webinar with, you know, a group of probably pretty boring sounding kind of old guys who, you know, were just like, you know, I've been you know, sounding the bell of this crisis point of the Colorado River for 20 years, you know, and to kind of even even tone, maybe kind of boring as they say this. And then I'm thinking of this one guy in particular who then says, and I never imagined it could be this catastrophic. 
And there's no way we're getting out of this without pain. And um, that's just one river. It's a mighty river. It's humongous. I mean, you know, with the Colorado and the Mississippi, we almost have our equivalences of the Nile here in, in North America. Um, you know, after 9 million years, the river doesn't make it to the ocean anymore. We had a bailout for corporations and banks in 2008 during this financial crisis. And I remember the slogan then was like, they're too big to fail. And basically the government said, hey, people, you may not like it, but we feel we have to bail these banks out for $700 billion, more money than you thought we had, maybe more money than we did have, but they're too big to fail. And I just feel like we are at a point where I just feel like you look left, you look up, you look down, you look right. And we're in these natural systems. Like, is the Colorado River not too big to fail? Is the climate of North America not too big to fail? Are the weather patterns that bring us wet in wet places and dry and dry places and cool and cool places and hot and hot places, aren't those too big to fail? Um, so the point that we're at now is, are we going to recognize these are too big to fail? We're going to have to take some major action. What's good is that when you're taking ecological action, there's bounty, there's yields. There's beauty that doesn't come when you bail out banks, right? Um, I feel like that's the introduction to where we are now. Money, maybe you, you, we can go back and forth, and I don't know if you want to say say more and maybe bring bring some of that hope to the story. But just you know, I want to start out there. We're recognizing that these times are dire. We are in dire times, and maybe we have been for several generations. Um, and most people around the world say it's accelerating. And I remember a few years ago um, reading a survey that people had done around the world asking people from around the world if humanity was like in a human developmental stage, what stage would it be? And almost unanimously across the globe, people said we're in adolescence. And that felt right to me. Which um, is kind of a dangerous phase in life. And you're maybe testing the boundaries of what is safe and what is okay. Yeah. I mean, my first answer is I don't know. And I'm then a little, I'll try to say more about that in a second. Um, okay. But here's, here's one thing. I think that we are all in the recovery from a period of shock from the pandemic. You know, I think like, like, this, this message went out through the world, regardless of where you stand on it. You know, some people think that it was a hoax. Some people think it was overblown. Some people think it was a manipulation. And some people think it was a real disease that for the first time in human history, we've been able to coordinate a planetary response about. But one way or the other, this message went out all over the planet. And people all over the planet had to change their, the daily rhythm of their lives for and their interactions for for this disease you know and so now we're kind of coming out of that and it was always sort of nebulous about like what we should do and what we shouldn't do and we're sort of nebulously coming out of, of that but i think there's a generalized sort of like shock recovery that we're in and you know astrologically i i've been thinking 
I've been thinking a lot about Neptune. And I have for a long time because, you know, I've got a Neptune conjunct my natal sun. I'm a Pisces rising. You know, that energy is very, it's around me. It's a lot. I like, you know, and, and I'm fascinated by it. And I think it's a really beautiful energy um, that I actually think is a big part of the next period of human history. It's the Neptunian energy. But the way it's showing up now, I think since Neptune entered Pisces, what I feel like is the whole thing about conspiracy theory and about questioning like what is reality and now everybody's sort of making up their own realities to suit what they're already comfortable with has gone viral. And it's just expanded massively. And I think one of the really huge abuses that we're seeing now is abuse of the power of interpretation. You know, like people are interpreting, they're interpreting what, whatever information is coming to them in whatever way that, that suits them. And, and it's, it's tricky because we have all these questions about what is truth or is that term even relevant anymore? And I, I, I'm a kind of proponent of questioning what is true and what's truth. But I've also, I also think we've gotten to this Neptunian place where conceptually and ideologically, there's like no ground. There's no ground. And we're like just sort of out here in this haze with a, without a floor, without a sky. And, and, and in that, people are just making up it. And, and also something I think we're seeing all around the world, and I think this is a, 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 a manifestation of the, the Uranus-Pluto square, is we're just seeing, and, and Pluto and Capricorn, we're seeing just this rise in sort of like totalitarianism, like strongmanism, right-wingism, and, and, and the kind of traditional sort of tactics of, of what people refer to as fascism, one of which is the manipulation of the imagination and mythology. And, and, and that's, that's funny because that's the same power that we were just talking about in terms of SKP, or it's not SKP, uh, once in future green. It's, it's this working with story and narrative and myth. Um, and, and I feel like everyone's got a hold of that now, that ability, but like an adolescent, we have no wisdom about how to use it, you know? And, and, and another way that I think that's showing up, okay, I think we're in the struggle right now about the future and about what stories we're gonna tell about the future and therefore what planning we're going to do to move towards that future, you know? You know, some people are saying like, I think there's a sense that like, first of all, that the future that was projected say in the 1950s by certain segment of white America, corporate America, that that future is, is, is no longer viable, viable or desired. And then I feel like, so, so people have kind of stopped talking about the future. It's not Jetsons, it's not flying cars, you know, but, but in putting that aside, I feel like people are really, haven't really kind of come with really strong alternatives. And I, and I think people are also asking, why should we even be planning when it looks like 
the, the, that really we're going to be dealing with the karmic effects of the chaos we've caused to the ecosystem for the next two or three generations, if not longer than that. Like why, like how do we plan in that? By that, I mean, for the last several generations, we have um, taken more than we've given back to the earth or at least large segments of humanity, the particularly the segment of humanity that pioneered industrialization and this wave of colonization took more from the earth than they gave back. And now in like the most concrete sense, we are dealing with that. We're gonna have to deal with that feedback, those repercussions, that karma. You know, for example, part of our community burned down very quickly, like in 24 hours, we lost seven, what was it? How much? One in seven homes in our little- 1,000, yeah, one in seven and 1,000 burned up homes. In December, it's not fire season in Colorado. So, you know, we're seeing it, it's everywhere. Um, and I think the last thing I'll say is that I really feel that 2020 shut the door on the 20th century and our way of living and thinking about ourselves from the 90s, the 80s, the 50s, that, that you know, happy days and Fonzie and all that stuff's gone. Like, that's, that's out. Um, I heard Dane Rudyard say that a century doesn't really get its character until its 25th year. And I feel like 2020 shut the door on the, on, on the 20th century. And we're sort of in this hazy hallway before we really like take a hold of the 21st century and be like, what are we going to do? Because like, we need to act fast in a massive way. And I think if people act fast between now and like 2050, like we could build some good arcs to survive. And if not, it's going to be pretty rough. That's what it seems like. So I don't know if that's hope or not, but. Hmm. Um, there's some, I like that you brought up the imagination money because Ramon, sorry, I keep calling you by only us nickname, Ramon. Um, there is a struggle for the imagination right now. And I think it's a very thin line from going one way or another. The like my favorite example, you know, is I think one of our deep seated narratives, um, especially in the US, but I've seen it, I've seen evidence of this around the world, is this belief that humans are a bad presence on earth. Our role, the definition of human is inherently bad. And that um, we're like a cancer or even a, like a virus which is an interesting turn now that we've been dealing with COVID, you know, and people saying that humans are like a cancer, like a virus on earth. And it's like, how do we wrestle out of that way of seeing our role? Because if we see that role, it seems to be manifesting itself. The worldview that has that worldview has created a very bad situation. Whereas there's other worldviews that say humans could be good on earth. And actually, I kind of want to pause there. I want to have people like feel that. Do you even think that that's possible? That humans can be a benefit for earth. That we could be stewards. That our presence here makes things more abundant. My favorite example um, 
Charles Mann, who wrote uh, 1491 and 1493, um, did this research, which really is just compiling a lot of scientific research, uh, looking at Terra Preta in the Amazon, but it also exists in other places, in Colombia and Peru, and um, I think what's now Benin, um, in different parts of the world, this super rich, fertile black soil. And essentially, what he came to is this scientific conclusion that the Amazon rainforest, as he says, an emblem of wilderness, is anthropogenic, was created by people, that people created the conditions for the Amazon to exist. People created that fertility. And really, if you look at the ways in which South Americans farm, we don't farm in rows, you know, and, and Charles Mann has this great way of talking about one of his ancestors, his great, 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 great grandfather, um, who came from Europe and died of starvation in South America. And now here's his great, 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 great grandson doing this research that finds he died surrounded by a forest farm. That we don't farm in rows, we don't farm in monocultures, we farm with saying, okay, here's the canopy layer, here's the vine layer, here's the shrub layer, here's the, you know, herbaceous layer, here's the, um, you know, under the ground layer, here's the herb. So even now, when you go to some of these places that um, are still under indigenous care, um, what our eyes, especially coming from like the USC, is the jungle and wilderness and wildness and craziness. But if you learn to see, you're like, wait a minute, they have like companion species going on. You know, so um, it is possible. It's not going to be an easy thing. I don't think it's just like we need to rethink our imagination. It's really deep. Like, really, what do you see the role of humans as being on Earth? Like, what are the old stories that you have are we here and cursed are we here and blessed are we here to curse are we here to bless and i think maybe that's where some of this work with like embodied astrology and more spiritual ways of seeing really come and storytelling come into play because i don't think those questions can just be answered with science although i do see a lot of scientists kind of turning their heads um, when they get deep enough and saying wait a minute it might all be alive like, wait a minute, it might all be working together. Like, wait a minute, it might be regenerative. It might be intelligent. And not just it, we, as part of it. Ramon and I have this ongoing joke. We were um, in the mountains last year and we went to the Maroon Bells and they had these signs that said, the mountains don't care. And it was basically saying, take care of yourself, bring water, bring sun protection, like don't leave yourself out in the elements. And I just was so offended by this thing. I'm like, you don't know if the mountains care. They might just be working on a different time scale where they can't help very much. So it's more like the mountains can't help necessarily, you know? And I turned it into this whole thing where I'm like, it's not the mountains that don't care. It's like people that don't care. And you know, you can take that further. It's not people that don't care. It's like ca extreme capitalism that doesn't care. Um, but yeah, so there is this alignment that does seem to happen to some degree or another um, of seeing all of Earth as alive, where I think the worldview that most of us in the U.S. have been raised with is that 
mountains don't care, that rocks are not alive. Um, you know, you kind of grow up being like, is this alive or is that alive? You know, um, as a kid and like having to choose and that's like the wrong question. And I want to quickly say, um, uh, is it James Lovelock? Just recently passed away at like 103 years old. Um, who's a scientist responsible for the Gaia theory, you know, that says that Earth is an organism, Earth is alive. Um, and what I love, and part of why I keep working with you all, it's like embodied astrology, and astrology is to really say, if Earth is alive, I have the whole a feeling that the whole universe is alive. Um, and what does it feel like to really believe that and to start to be able to see it? Some of these things about paradigms and culture is like really what you can physically see in front of you. Like, do you see a wilderness that doesn't care? Or do you see the most well-tended garden that creates abundance, not just for people, but for whole ecosystems? Thank you both for, for those um, answers and reflections. Michelle, when I was listening to you, I was thinking about uh, recently reading the Tibetan book of the living and dying. And there was a passage in it that was an exchange between um, a Tibetan monk and a Christian pastor. And in the exchange, what got illuminated was a difference basically of a worldview such as Christianity has that at its core has a concept of sin and not enoughness. And a worldview such as Tibetan Buddhism has that at its core has a concept of generosity and gift. Um, and I was, I was listening to both of you and kind of feeling into my, my own instincts about where we are right now and remembering a lot of our past conversations. It really feels like this is a moment, uh, at least within human evolution and maybe even more than human or uh, the other, other realms that is a spiritual crisis and a soul crisis or a crisis of perspective. Um, and as storytellers and uh, mythology enthusiasts and seekers, I'm curious what role crisis plays in the myth. And we are here in a moment of crisis and I think it's fraught to ask for hope, right? Or like, what's the solution gonna be? Because, um, you know, we have to find our way into those spaces and uh, hope can, sometimes be um, its own kind of, of problem when, when we find it and, and what we're latching onto. But I'm wondering if, if you think that there is a reason for crisis or if there is a reason for this moment of breakdown um, and any potential in it within our possible paths of evolution. I want to kick that over to you, Ramon, with thinking about rites of passage and stories in that moment of crisis. Yeah, I was... Uh... I was going to kind of refer to that as like a shared history that all three of us have, right? We spent some time in works and places that that utilize that that understanding of rite of passage. Um, you know, like astrologically, I think the right of the, the crisis moment and the, and the rite of passage, the threshold moment, you could say, I think one is a square. You know. I mean, a square can be like nothing is happening and energy stuck and stagnant, but it can also be like, there's a lot of tension and you've got to find a way to break through the tension, you know? And, and I feel like if we were to look at things from like a purely energy level, like a crisis is when energy peaks 
and, and when it reaches a high point. And I think the crisis piece of it is, is that as egos who are afraid that that energy peak is gonna kill us, we resist the peak and then it gets stronger. And, and then you take that from one life and you multiply that times the, the millions and billions of lives and we create these collective crises, these dramas of these things that we, we should have tried to face these intense moments some time ago, and then they just piled up and became more intense, you know? And so I think part of the purpose of crisis, I guess, is just to like, if it's, it's, it's gotta shatter your ego to some extent, it's gotta crack your ego enough for the part of us that knows how to flow with life and how to transform as energy transforms to take over, you know? And, and, and then, you know, the sad thing is, is that we've had these myths that, you know, we have the apocalypse and Armageddon type of myths that, that basically say the crisis has to happen before we can get onto the, into the other side. And, and, and as a result, like we're creating the crisis and people almost feel like they have to force the crisis in order you know what I mean? Like, like there's, there's, a, there's a thing that's happening out there and it's really strong in the United States right now. It's really strong. Like, you know, we're like orchestrating. I mean, I don't know. It's like, we're like orchestrating a civil war amongst one another, you know, because, because instead of listening to one another and instead of like facing the uncomfortable things that we have to say to one another, we're letting it build up. We're resisting one another. We're letting it build up and like the energy's got to go into this big pop. So I don't know. I, 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 I feel like, yeah, like astrologically, like how do we move past the, the square? How do we work with the energy of the square? Um, how do we, you know, in some cases, I think the square asks you to push forward. And in some cases, I, I think it asks you to let go. And, and I think right now we have, we have our story of, of say the United States and of America and that we're gonna go to the grocery store and we're gonna be comfortable and, you know, and if we aren't gonna be comfortable then we should be trying to seek that comfort, right? The American dream. If you don't have it already, you should be trying to get it. And I think that's what this country has to let go of. We have to let go of this, the suburban 1950s idea that we're gonna have everything set up for us and we don't have to ask where it came from and on whose back it came. And I think we really have to let go of that and embrace this like turbulence that we're all about to experience and, and figure out how to hold on to each other and, and call out the best in one another, call out the spirit. And I don't know how it's done. And I honestly, I look out my window, I'm, we're firmly in the suburban situation. There's, we're safely right across the street. And, and when I really think, yo, what if those food trucks don't come? You know what I mean? Like we should be preparing right now. We should be preparing right now and building localized food systems. This is another aspect of, of Once and Future Green and another aspect of like the larger sort of matrix of communities that Michelle and I are involved in. You know, communities are working on food justice. You know, we should be building localized food systems right now.
right now that are, are climate appropriate, that are regionally appropriate, that are culturally appropriate. We should be reaching out to, you know, the wisdom keepers and folks that know how to grow this or that for this and that region right now. And, and so, so many people are just like, like in our community when this fire happened, people understandably want what they had back. And, and I feel like that's part of this thing is just like this crisis happened, it just blazed people's neighborhood down. And it could be an opportunity to take a fresh step that people just want their lives back and you can totally understand it. But I feel like that holding on to the past it's like how much louder will the feedback of the earth and the social environment and the psychological environment have to get before we can actually really let go and move, let the river of change take us. Mm, since you brought up river, I want to bring up um, another piece of wisdom from Jonah Macy uh, that talks about in crisis you know, when you're in the river of crisis and it's like white water and it's tumultuous and you don't know where it's going, the only thing you have to guide you is intention. Intention is the rudder. You know, and I think about growing up on the Colorado River all the time, you know, when you are in a strong current, you aim to get to the shore, maybe like perpendicularly, so that you will get there diagonally downstream. You know? Um, crisis, you know, makes you let go of maybe a lot of like planning and forethought and like good, clear, laid out plans. And that's part of why story is so important. Story is that intention. Which way are you trying to go? Are you working? I don't know where we're going, but we're working collaboratively or I don't know where we're going. And if I have to get mine at the risk of taking from yours, I'm going to do it. Right. Can there be win-wins? That was one of the things that scared me or worried me, concerned me the most with our previous president, with Trump. He doesn't seem like even someone who in business negotiations can even envision win-win situations. He seems like someone who only sees them as win-lose. I win, you lose. And, and like this business deal isn't done until you lost, which is so different than like, you know, the idea of collaboration, not competition. So what's that intention? We're going down that river. Is our intention like beauty, collaboration, health, safety? We might have a lot of um, disagreements about what all of those things ultimately mean. But what is the intention? What, what do we want to get out of this? What do we believe is possible? What do we believe is possible about community? What do we believe is possible about earth? You know, I think actually a lot of the ways that we farm show that we have a win-lose belief, that we will extract this corn out of these 140 acres. By God, whether we have to fill them with pesticides and toxic fertilizers and make the whole thing a toxic dump site or not, right? Um, if you look at our quote unquote, like social safety systems, we are going to make this community safe. I don't care if we have to put a quarter of Americans into prisons. So how do we get to those intentions? How do we start to, um, be able to, even with this cultural lens of win-lose, open it up a little bit so we can see win-win. So we can see that not only are there win-wins, there's like regeneration, 
right? Like things get better than they were. That's what's amazing about some of the like healing powers of nature, healing powers of people and communities. It's happened in community. And actually, whenever I talk about regeneration, I always talk about my aunt. And I bet everybody has someone like her of their community where she was basically given, you know, like a death diagnosis by doctors like 30 years ago. And has like no, her liver was done. You know, they were basically like, if you ever, I hope, please, Maria Almada, give me permission to share this story with strangers. Um, you know, like you have more, one more drink and you die. And here we are 30 years later. She's even had other forms of hepatitis since then. And her like liver is in perfect health. There's regeneration. And it actually turns out the liver is one of the most healing parts of the body. That's what a body worker told me once. I haven't actually researched it, but that it's actually very regenerative, right? It's meant to cleanse toxins. So there's like liver parts of the earth. And I think there's liver parts of community, you know, where there can be harm done. But if efforts and intention are made for healing, shoot, sometimes it's stronger than if it would have been if there hadn't been harm done. Now, I'm not um, I'm not saying that as a blanket statement for every harm that's ever been done, but I'm sure in people's lives, they can think about interpersonal relationships that are stronger because you've made it through conflict and tension and maybe even a disassemblage and a coming back together. I'm thinking about a therapist friend of mine, Tiaisha Edwards, who was actually a guest on Embodied Astrology a couple of years ago, and they were uh, bringing up a metaphor of the second fruiting of plants and how, you know, there might be the first flowering or the first fruiting that has um, a lot of a beauty to it, or um, maybe another word would be purity to it. And then a plant might be cut down and its seeds or the ways that its mycelial, mycelial networks grow, um, survive. And then there's a second fruiting second flowering and that growth is often not as aesthetically perfect as the first one um, but it's often also a lot hardier and uh, more resilient because of what it has survived i'm so glad you brought that in there's so many good metaphors in there including just like a diversity of responses some um, cultures especially um, here in the u.s there was a lot of coppicing so i remember like reading and like you know, in high school, like, you know, plants with medicinal and blah, blah, blah use. And I would like find the plant and they were like, this was good for making arrows. And I'd look at the plant and be like, I wonder how they did that. Right. Because this plant does not look like it would make good arrows. And then learning about coppicing practices where there's certain plants where when you cut it down to the stump, the new growth grows nice and straight and tall. So it's not just that that plant is good for arrows. It's that when humans are tending for that, you know, you can get that second growth to be coppiced. You can get it to be nice and straight. There's certain plants, not all plants, but there's certain plants that do better when they're disturbed. There's certain flowers that will give you more flowers if you cut off that first flower that it grows. If you want three flowers from this plant, it doesn't necessarily mean you grow three seeds. It means you cut the first head and then you end up with three. It's like the hydra, but in like beautiful reverse. <laughs> um, and with diversity, you have to recognize that's not true for every plant. 
so um, one of my favorite sayings from um, an old boss of mine, um, uh, Dave Newport, was, you know, boiling water hardens the egg, but softens the potato. So, you know, what we're doing here is not creating any hard, fast rules, but just like recognizing these like regenerative powers, the power of transformation, knowing that, you know, water will soften some things and harden others, you know? I don't think that in our culture and our society, we have that much space for that type of diversity. It's just like, what education system is the best? What security system is the best? What is the best number of cops per capita? to make a community safe. Like, that's not how it works. You know, it needs to be site specific. Like what, what are the other conditions in this area? What are the natural, how do you say that? Inclinations of um, this community? And also what has the community already been through? Was it already coppiced last year and you can't just keep recoppicing it? So um, I'm so glad that you brought in some of those natural uh, intelligent ways that don't necessarily give us answers, but maybe give us really good questions, you know, and get us more on track with a better set of questions. That would be a beautiful um, outcome of this very uncertain time is that we come up with really good questions. Yeah, I um, feel really inspired by both of you, as well as, you know, Joanna Macy, Adrian Marie Brown, um, Bio Kamalafe. I feel like there's a lot of folks who are looking to nature and natural systems as models of leadership and growth and um, you know, evolution on some levels, whether it's organizational or systemic or something like that. And maybe that's a good segue to start talking about your workshop that you're gonna be offering with Embodied Astrology. Um, so we have a workshop with you coming up on August 21st, which is the cusp day between Leo season and Virgo season. And your workshop is called Aligning the Layered Self. Um, and you're going to be exploring leadership uh, in this workshop. And as we've been talking, I've been thinking about how I really hear both of you um, feeling into the stories that we tell and the ways that we orient around story. And that I hear both of you talking about the need to tell stories that are inclusive, that are diverse, that uh, don't necessarily center on, you know, the one hero or the protagonist, but um, the mini or the communal or the council. And I'm curious, what does leadership mean to you? It's a word that we hear all of the time, and it has a lot of connotations associated with it. And what does it mean to you when, when you each feel into leadership? How do you feel it embodied? Okay. Yeah. Take a, take, take a try at that one. Um, I kind of want to take a half step back and just got, we've got this chart in front of us and also just kind of looking at what's been going on in my world and environment. Um, first of all, I've really, I think Michelle and I both experienced it. Like the field of synchronicity seems very strong these days. Um, this Leo season just felt very strong. And I think that's in part, like astrologically, we could say that's in part like Uranus's influence. You know, Uranus kind of breaking up Saturn's linear time and sort of introducing these different disjunctured or like revealing certain patterns on our time, you know? Um, 
And, and there's also this really kind of strong, first of all, you got the conjunction of Uranus, Mars, and the North Node, and then they're squaring that Leo sun there, you know? And as we move into this workshop, something I've observed in my world and something I feel like I've been like kind of tested on is like, um, I've observed, first of all, uh, I've been impulsed from different parts of my life to step up and to take a higher level of responsibility and to take a kind of, uh, or express myself with a higher level of confidence and to be more daring and bold and imaginative. And also something I'm seeing is I'm seeing leaders around me really be tested by people around them and having their integrity tested and people having pretty intense expectations of what their leaders are capable of. And, you know, and in and, and some, some, some ways, even like leaders kind of getting grilled, you know, by people that in some cases they're, are trying to help. And I feel like that's part of what, what leadership is. It's, it's first of all, it's a willing to help, willingness to help. If you see a problem, if you see someone in trouble, if you yourself are in trouble, you mobilize to try to do something about it. Um, you know, I, I think leadership is also about, about um, it's about courage. You know, it's about seeing things that people fear or that you fear and, and taking a step forward into that. Um, you know, and, 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 and I think part of what this square can show us and, and, you know, when our workshop happens, we've got an opposition between the sun and Saturn, you know, I feel like part of all this energy ramping up towards the end of Leo season is we're also in this really intense question about what, what does it mean to be a leader and what are the forms of leadership and the ways in which sometimes leaders are overbearing or, vain or self-centered, like all that Leo stuff, and are so kind of intoxicated in some ways by the power of, that they express as leaders. Because that's another thing about leadership. But leadership is about taking hold of power and about expressing power. And I think people are seeking now for leaders to also share power. And so a lot of our leaders, I think, are being scrutinized and questioned and tested and in some respects i think those tests come from unrealistic expectations about what leaders are and what they can do and about people in some ways not standing up in their own leadership and in some ways i think it's because we are struggling to find new ideas about what a leader looks like or what if we go back to leo the sovereign looks like you know um you know we talked about the the, the sovereign as this thing or this appearance that happens in multiple places with the once and future. And about the green, this like shared life force in a way as the sovereign, you know? So I think we're all on this quest about like what leadership looks like because we need leadership right now. Like we need to act like collectively in the 21st century or we're in deep trouble. You know, so, so part of what we want to get at this, in this workshop is, you know, 
the idea that everybody's a king, everybody's a queen, everybody's a princess, everybody has the, 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 the bright mind, everybody has the big heart, everybody has some kind of tools or capacities that they can express and support one another and step forward with courage and, and have vision. And that a lot of that giftedness that people have to share with one another um, is, is, is giftedness that goes back generations. You know, like we started, you started us off with the question of what our lineages and, you know, something that was kind of preoccupation of the last decade of my life definitely was like reconnecting with my father's lineage, which is where all, a lot of the, the kind of ministers and preachers are at. And also struggling with that lineage in some respect, because I mean, here I am, I'm, 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 I'm on the astrology tip, you know, I'm on the Afrofuturist tip, you know, I'm on earth magic tip. And, and I'm from a family that really constellates all that through the figure of Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? And so just struggling with that, like, how do, how do you, how do, how do I have these, these sort of starry ancestors on one side and then these Christian ancestors over here and then these sort of gangster ancestors, right? You know what I mean? Like all those kind of figures, all, how do we constellate them so that those energies and gifts, we don't try to reject any of those gifts, but we can actually constellate them in a way to where they can actually express, if not simultaneously, when each is needed. And so that's, that's, that's kind of like thematically where we want to go with the workshop. And then the last thing I would say is, this is Leo tipping in the Virgo. And one of the big messages of Virgo is check yourself. You know, ask yourself questions, be willing to scrutinize your behavior. You know, uh, be willing to watch the ways in which leaders get drunk on power and can get out of control. You know, so how do we also, even as we bring all those energies together or try to, how do we also check ourselves and really check out what is needed in a particular situation? And maybe even like, what are, how do we, you know, the, the dimension of skillfulness, I'll just say, as a, as a Virgoian quality. Leadership. There is no one definition. I feel like I wouldn't dare try to answer that by myself. This is a communal question, especially now. Um, yeah, a group of people, maybe a large group, maybe a small group of people, many times over really need to decide what this means now. Um, for my actual practical work in the world, what that usually means is leading is making room for others. Um, you know, I think we, again, back to narratives and story, we just have such a strong story here of like such rugged individualism that like other people will follow you or like, I feel like, is it George Washington on the Potomac, like on a boat leading and like, you know, being in front. And, you know, I think it's such a story that even when we look to nature, we're like, ah, yes, like, you know, the lion is the strongest. So is the leader. Uh, oh, yes, the queen bee, there's only one. So she's the leader. And maybe there's some truth to that. But also, she's like the most vulnerable one. You know, and she's important because she's like tending to the brood. She's tending to the babies. A lot of protection is needed for that role. 
you know, the bee, queen bee gives, I don't know how many, like thousands of eggs per day. As a person who's given birth, that sounds exhausting. You know, that doesn't necessarily sound just like an exalted position. To me, that sounds like a position of massive, like, service, massive giving, massive sacrifice. Again, in my own practical work, sometimes what I think I have seen, you know, I think you like witness leadership. And I think we, I wish there was more recognition that maybe it like cycles and it like moves through a community. I think we again have this like definition of like the one. And it's like, you know, King Arthur's whole thing was this round table, but everybody's just like King Arthur was the one. You know, and he's like, no, guys, I'm talking about everyone around this table. And everyone's like, yes, King Arthur is the one, you know, and I've seen that happen with our movements. You know, I really saw that with Occupy, you know, and Occupy was like, we are a leaderful movement. This is not just one person. It's led by many, you know, and it was almost like the media was like, oh, so you have no leader. You have no organization. You have no one that can represent you. Like they just couldn't even see it. They can't see leadership that goes through cycles. Yeah, I'm the leader this month, but I have to take care of my parents next month. You know what I'm saying? Like, what? where is there space for leadership to look like a group versus a one? Where is there space for leadership to look like making space, not taking up space? You know, is there some sort of, since you all are talking about Leo, like, is there some different, differentiation between like wanting to shine and wanting to lead? I think they're very mixed up in this culture. You know, it's like you're shining, so you're the le- you're the leader. And you're like, oh no, I was I was just trying to sing this song, and everybody liked it. And now you're asking me how I think we should solve climate or you know over um, policing and police brutality and incarceration. That's literally something that happens. I mean, people turn to like these pop icons, and they're like, what should we do? Like you're shining so bright, you must be a leader. Mm. Um, I think sometimes leadership is a sort of um, bravery in the face of feeling powerless or maybe even being willing to say, maybe as a group, like I feel powerless against this problem. And then others are like, oh my gosh, me too. Because you are powerless as an individual, maybe or maybe not. But maybe you're powerful as a group, maybe or maybe not. Um, so how do we break open to different forms of leadership and what leadership looks like? I mean, I really think we're still looking for that one loud, unwavering individual. And you know, some of that pushback that Ramon's talking about, you know, we're in this era of like massive change towards social justice. We're really in the wake of Black Lives Matter still. That energy is still like pushing things forward and making people question things they weren't questioning before. Hallelujah. Um, And, you know, I actually just heard a story with the great granddaughter of uh, Madam C.J. Walker, who um, was in the 1800s and was America's first millionaire and was a Black woman that was born, I think, into sharecropping. you know, what a story. And she was the first millionaire, which in today's terms would have been a billionaire. And um, I guess they just recently did a some sort of documentary slash movie about her, I think on Netflix. And 
her great great granddaughter was, you know, in this interview, is expressing frustration. Like we told them to please not just make the story about her. And even when she told her own story, she's like, no, I was a part of this group of women, and they like helped me see the future, and they helped me believe that I could make something bigger, and they helped me see that, you know, even without education, even without being literate, we could make this big business that would also help serve people, you know, and just like. You know, it's just kind of like Charles Mann's great great grandfathers in the Amazon not being able to see food because it wasn't laid out in rows before them. You know, this culture not being able to see leadership because there's not like one single wavering individual that has an unlimited wealth of, you know, strength and stamina and assertiveness, which is really weird for our movements because we don't necessarily like that form of leadership. But yet we still look for it, it seems, and we still yield to it, it seems. So how could we um, create a lot of uh, different ways of seeing and being leaders and, and recognizing leadership? Um, and then with the workshop that, you know, we're going to do, you know, part of what leadership is, is, like all of us are leading as the representatives the living representative of our ancestry. Like we have million people behind us, but we're the only ones living right now that can lead and take action in this realm in really tangible ways. So that's leadership. And honestly, to me, a large part of what we'll be going through in this workshop and that I've been going through, it's almost a spiritual shift with ancestry and I would say with spirit or God. Um you know, almost from like begging and praying, like, please this, and shifting towards like demanding and articulating, or the way that we put it in Judaism, like wrestling with God, like you have the right to wrestle with God. In my mind, you better be clear about your intention. You can't be having like selfish little whims that you're wrestling with God about. But the types of issues that we've been talking about in our time here together of like climate catastrophe, environmental injustices, social injustices, racism, sexism, all of these different forms of oppression. You know, how do we get leadership, get clear, get articulation and wrestle with God if we have to, to bring these things to fruition? Michelle, you mentioned coming from many different ancestries and people having a lot of different influences and in the description of your workshop, uh, you all propose that you're going to work with these themes as well. Um, and so I'm wondering if, uh, as we wrap up our conversation for, for today, for this episode, um, if there are any thoughts that you want to leave us with around the kind of complexity of working through so many different timelines. And Ramon, I'm really curious about how your thoughts on Afrofuturism might fit into this as well. Um, but you talk about in the workshop wanting to uh, assist people to listen into different ancestral influences for unfinished business or points of conflict. And when you both were just sharing about leadership, I was hearing, you know, a lot of different worldviews about what leadership is and could be and kind of um, a fair amount of conflict and also lineages of oppression and dominance with how leadership has been defined. Um, so how are you thinking about the, the work that you want to be doing 
um, in this workshop, but also in a broader view that bridges the past, the present and the potential future. Um, and when it comes to our leadership potentials, what is the necessity or what is the invitation for us to be looking into the past as we are considering how we lead forward? I'm, first of all, I'm just kind of struck by your, you, Michelle, you telling the story about Madam C.J. Walker and, you know, as being like in today's, you know, equivalent would be the first black billionaire, you know, woman, you know, at a time in like the thickest part of, you know, American white supremacy. And, you know, part of the way she made a fortune is by selling um, skin bleaching cream. You know what I mean? Like, and you could say part of the way she, she made her fortune was kind of on a certain kind of colorism and a, a sense that like, if you were gonna be a high class person as a black person at that time, your lighter skin was to an advantage, you know? And, and so when we look back at her as an ancestress who, you know, made it and made it big and even the worst situation, we also have to wrestle with that piece of things, you know? And so, and I wanna say this too, are we gonna cancel her as somebody, as an ancestor of honor and as a pillar because she sold skin bleaching cream? You know what I mean? You know, who's gonna look back at us and the things that we're doing now and be like, no, that was off. You know, so so one of the one of the kind of moves in, in Afrofuturism is is um, you know you can look at the novels of Octavia Butler. You know you can look at at, at Sun Ra's concepts of stepping in and out of time. You know there's 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 a lot there, but one of the one of the moves is that that the past is actually um, fluid to a certain extent. And this gets back to this Neptunian thing of interpretation. It's a dangerous tool to do because it can also be revisionist history of the nastiest kind. You know, there's people right now who are trying to say, well, I mean, slavery, it was only 0.1% of the white population and therefore, da, da, da. and then they just go into something about how basically it's irrelevant. But one of the moves of Afrofuturism is to realize that time is a, is a multidimensional, expansive fluid that we can reach into and shift and that we can uncover layers in time that were previously covered and then by uncovering layers in the past we can actually access new futures you know there's a symbol from ghana called sankofa it's basically a bird reaching back cleaning its tail feathers and and the traditional wisdom around that is um when you reach hard times, when you reach points of crisis, points of question, you go back to the past and you fetch something valuable from the past and you bring it forward into the future. You remix the past, you take an element or record of the past and then you cut it with what's happening now. And so a part of the impulse now for futurism and, and we're also evoking this name ancestral futurism to be inclusive of people from all kinds of backgrounds. But one of the impulses of Afrofuturism is to look back and reveal those layers of the past and help the past be more multidimensional and to even reinterpret people who may have seen as victims, as people who are survivors, 
and people who were victorious, who were adaptive and who left things for us that we can utilize now and in the future. So that's kind of what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be taking that Afrofuturist type of stance and looking back at our own ancestry to uncover or to have, you know, kind of stand out in, 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 a, in, a, in a stronger relief uh, qualities of our past, even in some ways of our imagined past, because not all of us have access to knowledge about our ancestors. And not all of our ancestors are blood ancestors. You know, so we're gonna be working with that, that past as a way to open up futures, but also to, to make the present moment really, which is the, the reach point to all of them anyway, more vibrant with, with possibility. Thank you, Ramon. I love that. Um, in talking about, you know, some of those ancestors that, you know, were maybe, oh, you know, violent, like transgressors against each other, something that you said really made me think of, um, you know, being able to harvest from all of them. And that part of this is a harvesting. And I just spent a couple of days um, alone in the mountains and um, was reading, I think it was about an, an elder, like a Sambucus um, plant where they were saying the berries are good, but like all the stems and the other parts of the plant are toxic, right? So there's like, you know, again, even as we like, when we harvest, we know there's like certain ancestors where we're gonna be like, very careful about what we're harvesting from them, knowing that if we harvest in the wrong way, you know, we can, you know, we can get hurt, we can get a spiritual rash, we can, you know, get a spiritual burn, you know. Um, how amazing if we can start to cultivate unknowing how to work with different plants and ancestors and ways, different cultural ways at the same time and ways that don't harm each other. The other thing I was thinking about was, um, you know, you learn that in the garden in places where tobacco has been grown, um, tomatoes and I think many nightshades can never grow there, you know. And part of how I see a lot of our ancestry is that, yeah, tomatoes will never grow where tobacco has grown. And yet here we are. And here we are in that same soil. And I don't know what miracle happened to bring us here. It's actually not easy, um, but we're here and we might actually be able to harvest a little bit of, you know, a little bit of tobacco, a little bit of tomato. What different plants, what different purposes they serve, you know? Um, you know, if you were starving, you would much rather happen upon some tomato plants. <laughs> Um, and yet tobacco is so sacred and it is known as something that the, the land wants, um, at least here in the Americas and the scene as a way to offer to the land. Um, so yeah, how do we come together? How do we harvest? Um, how do we harvest from these ancestors? How, for me, one of my biggest questions is like, how do we get them to work together? And part of the inquiry and part of the reason for this workshop really came from me working for years feeling like I could feel my ancestors fighting inside of me and starting to get to the point where I'm like I can't live life feeling this torn 
you know, and I'm going to need you guys to work together. And so what is leadership? I'm not sure what it means for every single person, but part of what it means is trying to get this ancestry to work together through you. Some of them were violent. Some of them were leaders. Some of them were wealthy. Some of them invented wealth. Some of them stole. Some of them lost everything. Some of them had no choice. Some of them were joyous. That was a revelation for me in doing ancestral work. You know, uh, I lived for so long really feeling a lot of my ancestors' grief. That was like a revelation at one point when I felt like they were like, um, hello, we like danced and had feasts and like had a good time together sometimes. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I feel like I very clearly come from these different cultural ways, but I really think probably most of us, if we go into our ancestry, find that we might have those different elements and forces fighting within us. Um, and part of what my practice has become, again, looking to nature is the solution is the ecotome. So you probably hear me talk about this a lot, but the ecotome is where two biological regions come together. And in this special in-between region, you have all of the plants and animals from one region, all of the plants and animals from the other region, plus plants and animals that only exist in this special region. Right. So we're in Colorado. So it's like you have maybe all of the animals and plants from the plains, all of the animals and plants from the mountains, plus what only exists in that in-between zone. So it's a place of a special fertility and a special importance and a special diversity. And so trying to cultivate and see myself more as an ecotone rather than like an intersection where all of these different um, cultures and belief systems come and meet and and hopefully pass each other, but maybe crash. You know, I don't want to be an intersection. I want to be an ecotone. I want to be a confluence. I want to be a place where these things come together into one and know that um, if it's my story, then it's the story of my people. So we'll talk more, I think, about what all of that means. But, um, you know, I think part of what I'm speaking to is like, if you have struggled with your ancestry, if you've struggled with being multicultural, um, even if you've struggled with like violence, you know, of, you know, maybe coming from um, a partnership, whether it was your parents or your grandparents that, you know, are felt to be violent, you know, what does it mean to have both of those people now within you? Um, again, maybe trying to harvest those little pieces, knowing that there might be thorns, there might be some toxins in part of it. Some of it might have to be processed. You know, we live in Colorado where choke cherry is abundant. And it was one of the primary food sources for some of those people that Ramon was, you know, giving appreciation for the Navajo, of the, um, sorry, the Cheyenne and the Arapaho and the Ute. Choke cherry is so important, but you have to process it or else the seed gives you too much arsenic. It's actually toxic until you just process it a little bit. You have to know how to work with it just a tiny bit. So we're going to try to open some of that up um, and use that as a way to um, work with who we are, work with the type of leadership that we want as we recognize that no matter who we are, we are leaders of our ancestors by being alive right now. Mm, that's amazing. I love that invitation to feel into the complexities of where we're all coming from, not as um, just intersections, which sometimes feels to me like 
fate, you know, <laughs> here you are and you're this confluence of all of these different um, lineages and streams pouring into you. And that's what you're going to be. But you're talking about this potential place of um, kind of a radical fertility, you know, and this innovation and possible for newness and new growth. So thank you for that. I'm really excited to take your workshop on the 21st. I uh, feel like there's so much potency in the cusp between Leo and Virgo. And a while ago, Ramon, when you were talking about the Leo Virgo energies, I was thinking of um, how I've sometimes heard Leo described as uh, a solar principle that can in a lot of ways be related to Dharma you know, that this is what we must express because of who we are inherently. And what we must express will come out and there will be some kind of growth or, or life manifestation. But Virgo, I often think of as the intelligence of Mother Earth and the intelligence of nature that takes all of these different components and is constantly recycling them and reworking them into new forms. Um, and what we each must express, of course, then meets the relational field and the context of the current moment. And um, we get weathered, you know, we get refined. And it feels like such an opportune and potent moment for probably a lot of us to be working with these questions of coming and going and what we're all um, working with in terms of what we've been given, but also how we can refine our offerings and continue to work with them so that we can process them, Michelle, like you said, and uh, harvest what can lead to nourishment. Um, so I hope that all the listeners will check out the workshop with Ramon and Michelle that's happening live on August 21st online via Zoom. And the recording will also be available uh, for the month following throughout Virgo season for purchase if folks can't make the live event. Um, before we close today, is there anything else that you two have coming up with Once in Future Green? Any, um, you know, calls or promotions that you want to let the listeners know of? Ways that people can get in touch with you or dream projects you'd love to work on? So, you know, we continue to do workshops, trainings um, for a really diverse group of folks. Um, we work with governments and cities on you know, how do you engage frontline communities to make your climate action planning possible? That radical fertility that you were just talking about, um, the way we see it, that's pretty much the only way out. And you know, if there's no one definition of leadership right now, you know, it goes with this principle of like, none of us is smarter than all of us. And yet the idea of a leader was like that one smart person. And, and maybe it's a group like the government. Maybe it's that one smart city planning department or sustainability department that's going to figure everything out. Um, how do we re-democratize things? How do we help communities lead? So I think we continue to work with um, governments, philanthropies, um, sort of power holders and stakeholders, including at like universities, um, to start creating that space that leaders create for other people to be able to lead, for other voices to get to have a say. Um, and part of the reason that that is so important in our work is because that's how we solve for multiple problems at once. Most of us are not just trying to solve like 
for water issues or, you know, even in our movement, part of this workshop that we're going to be doing, you know, we're trying to help clarify people's intentions and feel like if we get deep enough that we can trust people's intentions enough because the movement as it is right now is kind of divided. It can look like, you know, um, a movement about like public reinventing public security and then a movement around climate and water and a movement around environmental justice as all these separate things. Um, but most of us are living like whole lives and like, I'm not going to be okay just because there's enough water in the Colorado river right now. That is not my only situation. That's not my only problem. So when we give communities and frontline communities, the power um, and the resources to help solve their own problems. Usually it's for more than one of those quote unquote problems at the same time. We get to solve for diversity of things at the same time. How do we have things be socially just, delicious, culturally strong, with good education for our families and children, with care for our elders? How do we do that? And then also some of our work is actually going into frontline communities and community groups and trying to build capacity in terms of ecological knowledge. And in terms of like recognizing the heritage that we have as frontline community members in ecological practices, um, you know, so we have, we do presentations on what are some amazing innovative ecological practices from around the world and recognition that innovation does not just mean something has never been done before. Sometimes innovation is like that Sankofa bird that Ramon was just talking about where we look back and we fetch what is needed and bring it into the present. So that's some of what we have going on is, you know, if you're working at an institution or with a community group, we do workshops and, um, you know, help bring, bring some of that confluence into work so things are not quite as segregated. Amazing. Well, I am such a fan of Once and Future Green and both of you as individuals and your family as a whole. And thank you again so much for being here with me on the Embodied Astrology podcast. Thank you for coming to facilitate in a couple of weeks um, with the EA community. And thank you both so much for doing the work that you do. It's such important work. And I hope that all the listeners um, check the show notes, get your contacts, get your websites, learn how to follow you and support your work. And I'll be looking forward to our next meeting our next hangouts and until then i'm wishing you both um a gentle rest of the summer and journey through this uh fixed cross that we're navigating in leo season um integration of the uranus saturn square that we'll navigate through the end of the year and all the other transits as well of course Thank you. Thanks for all the space for many voices that you create and that embodied astrology creates and, you know, the ways in which you're cultivating space for leadership and for people to come together um, and also to create what they may not have created before in that fertile ground in that special third space. It's not once in future green. It's not embodied astrology. It's special forces that come together when we all come together. Mm -hmm. Mm, thank you both so much. For more information on Michelle and Ramon's work, please visit onceinfuturegreen.com. Follow them on Instagram at gpclan and Twitter at fabfamilia. Additional information and contacts are in the show notes. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and networks. You can find more guest episodes at embodiedastrology.com in the listen section. Get free monthly horoscopes and stay tuned in with the earth, skies, and planets by signing up for one of Embodied Astrology's membership tiers. Find more information at embodiedastrology.com forward slash join.